a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olukur, speaking to you from Montreal, Canada. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, speaking from Brussels. Today, we are talking with former Dutch Foreign Minister Bert Kunders about how the war in Ukraine is shaping EU policy and Europe's geopolitics. The future of our European Union is also written in Ukraine. And this is for the EU an opportunity to play the role of a geopolitical actor. And to understand that uh, apart from being a soft power, we need to be a hard power. Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year has had a profound impact on Europe, with far-reaching implications for the region's security, its economy, and its politics. The conventional wisdom holds that the EU reacted uncharacteristically quickly, implementing harsh sanctions against Russia, aiding Ukrainian defense, and adapting its energy policies. But rapid is not necessarily, or in all cases, the same thing as effective. And the continuing crisis raises questions about what all this means for the EU and for the region and their future. What will the EU role be if the evolving security order is one of hard deterrence against Russia? How would it need to adapt, both in its internal structures and its policies towards the region and beyond? What if things go in other directions? And in the near term, how can EU states best support Ukraine as they themselves face limits and constraints? In light of all this, what role do we expect the U.S. to play under all these different scenarios that are out there for how the situation in Europe evolves and how the situation in the United States evolves? To talk about all of this, we are delighted to welcome Bert Kunders. Bert served as Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands between 2014 and 2017 and as Minister for Development from 2007 to 2010. In between that, he was the UN Special Representative to Côte d'Ivoire and then Head of the UN Peacekeeping Mission in Mali, MINUSMA. Bert is currently a professor at Leiden University. I should also mention that he's a member of Crisis Group's Board of Trustees. Bert, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Bert, I think you were actually one of our very first guests when we first got the podcast uh, going, uh, now well over three years ago. Uh, the world has changed. Yes. Um, how has it changed? Kind of, if you were in a nutshell, if you were to say how Russia's invasion, uh, full scale invasion of Ukraine has changed Europe, what would be your kind of quick elevator answer? Well, the quick elevator answer is a geopolitical time shock for Europe, the return to uh, interstate warfare. I think it's correct what the German Chancellor said. It's a Zeitenwende. Things before the war will not return. Um, I think it creates among the European leadership an end to Euroscepticism, although that is still around in some countries. Everybody realizes that this return of such violent war in Europe 
uh, requires European answers uh, and a new emancipation of European decision making. I think it has also a lot of consequences immediately that shapes the future of Europe. Uh, not all countries will react in the same way, even if they are more united than ever, to this geopolitical time shock. Look at a country like Germany, which was much more dependent than others on Russian oil, on Chinese export markets and on, on US defense uh, dependency. A country like France has to adapt itself to the situation in another way because uh, it has its specific ideas about strategic autonomy at a time that the role of the US is more than ever prevalent in Europe. Uh, we see countries like Poland emancipating in Europe uh, because of their closeness to the borders and their more assertive role in terms of the Ukraine uh, war. So mm, there is definitely more unity. Uh, there is at the same time different countries adapting to it. That leads sometimes to slow decision making. But overall, I would sense it is a shock, not only in terms of geopolitics, but also mentally, I think, in terms of, you know, the shocks also to a much lesser extent, obviously, than the Ukrainians, but in terms of energy and, and, and economic consequences for some of our European citizens. And it is this sense of insecurity, this sense that a geopolitical holiday for, for Europe is over, I think, is the most prevalent. Uh, I was minister in 2014 during the time of the MH17 uh, shot down by a buck missile from, from, from the Russians, where we were already faced with, you could say, a, a storytelling, if not lying, a Russian Federation on what had happened. But you see that this uh, real, this warfare between countries with a combination of first world war and very modern types of, of uh, use of technologies is, is unique and is, is giving an enormous change in Europe. So I'm going to just follow up on that um, because I think we don't unpack often enough what insecurity for Europe means. You'll hear an argument that this is a war that has kept to Ukraine. Um, European countries are supporting Ukraine, other European countries, other European countries are supporting Ukraine, but they're not in the fight. Correct. I mean, is there a real threat that Russian troops are going to move across other European borders? Why is Europe insecure? Europe is insecure on the aspect that I mentioned. But let me first and foremost say that it is, as you say, not a total war for Europe. Uh, we are supporting uh, the uh, Ukrainians, and we come, I'm sure, in a discussion what that means in terms of military and economic tools. But it's definitely clear that for reasons of risk of escalation, uh, this 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 war is devastating the Ukraine. And therefore, you're absolutely right. We will have to see to what extent this solidarity remains resilient uh, in the eyes of, of all our peoples that are basically not fighting themselves. The consequences, however, of this war are uh, in, among Europeans discussed at length. If you look at the gas prices, the purchasing power of the lower groups in society, the counter-cyclical funds, the future of our energy safety, hybrid war warfare around uh, our installations and so on and so forth. So I wouldn't want to compare our security in in any way with the day-to-day -day horrors of the Ukrainian people. 
However, for the Europeans who were on holiday, if you wish, geopolitical holiday, you see that also for them, there is some consequences of this war. And that's part of a European battle around gas and energy prices, around purchasing power of, of, of the middle classes and those who need support. $700 billion, can you believe it, have been put in the European economy. Uh, to cushion uh, the, the the consequences of of sanctions and 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 the earlier dependency uh, on Russian oil and gas, we'll we'll come back to the energy security issue shortly. But I wanted to get back. To, I wanted to talk to you about unity. I mean, you said that there's more unity in in um, Europe as a result of the war. I mean, I think many of us were surprised about how much unity there has been. How united. Europe has been, um, I certainly think the, the Russians were probably surprised about how united Europe has been. Do you worry about European solidarity lasting? And, you know, how are there divisions between the states? What can the EU itself do? Is, can it do more to support member states and particularly those that are especially affected by some of the, the shocks that we've seen, um, from, from the war, as you said, on, on rising prices and on energy prices? Look, first of all, I, I do think the most important is to underline in the context and within the limits we just discussed, the enormous unity compared to what I was used to also as a foreign minister a few years ago when we were fighting almost about everything during the first perfect crisis, uh, when there was not yet a war, but we had uh, to deal with Syrian refugees, with the, the, the uh, Greek uh, uh, situation in the euro, with Brexit and so on and so forth. You see an enormous amount of relative unity around that. That doesn't mean that it's automatically given for the future. And that it doesn't mean an enormous a lot of efforts. And this resilience, therefore, is also not given for the future. We had one winter to deal with uh, in terms of gas and energy prices. There's been an enormous welcoming. I have to see that, say that positively of Ukrainian uh, refugees, especially in Eastern Europe, but also, for instance, in my own country. And you see, it was interesting to look at the polls that actually the sense of solidarity, the need to continue to support the the defense of the Ukrainians, which they do so courageously, is increasing in Europe rather than, than reducing, although it's different between different groups of countries. And if you talk about the need for solidarity with Ukraine, we come, what I think in a minute, what that means for military, economic, uh, and other types of support. But uh, the assumption is there that you do it within the context of solidarity in Europe. And that means, I think, quite a bit. It means that we have to specifically anticipate support for countries that are the most vulnerable, not only in the European Union, but also in the Balkans. Uh, I, I look at the fragility in, in countries like Bosnia, Moldavia, uh, in some other countries in that region, which is also a priority in, in view of the war that is going on. Not that we expect tomorrow that Putin will invade in these countries, but the possibilities of destabilization are there, as we know. Look at a country like Moldavia. It requires also, I think, the use of an intense new capacity of the European Union in terms of energy policy, where there are very different interests. This was never a complete European competence. We see now specifically Germany, where they build LNG gas installations, 
Uh, we see uh, transport lines between France and, and Spain being discussed. There's a whole new era of, of European cooperation that is catalyzed by the Ukrainian war that is also an answer to the enormous dependency that we had and is quite quickly reduced, by the way, at least from Russia. Now it's leading to dependency from other countries. Uh, but I think in these areas, on migration policy, on support for refugees, on the different components of what it means economically for member states, uh, we will need the solidarity. Otherwise, uh, and, and I think this is well taken, the point that was just made, we are not fighting in the Ukraine. And before you know it, people might, say, might think it's, it's a distant war. I don't expect that, but it requires every day an investment politically, uh, financially, if you, if, in mindset uh, between and inside European countries. So the energy story um, feels like a success, uh, but it seemed touch and go for a while. A lot of European countries had uh, let themselves become very dependent on Russian sources of energy. They have divested, and then we've had the good luck to have a fairly mild winter across Europe, which has made that hurt a lot less than expected. Um but how does this look going forward, and what relationship does it have to efforts to tackle climate change? You hear different things. You hear, on the one hand, that this has accelerated the move towards uh, greener um, energy policies in Europe, and on the other, that a lot of the uh, diversification has been to other sources of fossil fuels, so perhaps not so much. Yeah. No, I think, to be very honest, uh, this is a very mixed bag. Uh, I am impressed and to a certain extent even amazed how quickly, at a very, very high price, obviously, uh, Europe has been able to reduce its dependency on uh, gas and oil, as you know, not completely, but nevertheless, to a large extent compared to a year ago. And the, the, the winter, the mild winter so far has helped this definitely. But it was at very high costs, also with a lot of, of income, actually, for the Russian Federation at the moment that we actually wanted to reduce that. But slowly in time, I think that will be uh, the future of Russia, at least to get less income from this from European countries. Uh, but that doesn't take away the, 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 the point uh, you mentioned, that we are not there yet by far. What does it mean for the greening of, 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 of our societies, the green Europe, the plans for that? I think uh, it's both. Uh, at the short term, it will it is delaying this at the moment that all the urgency is needed because of what we know about climate change, the need to set clear targets for 2030 uh, and 2050. And we, we're clearly, uh, you know, slowing that down because of the fact that in my country, in Germany, but also elsewhere, uh, both the transition, it was actually a transition of fossil fuel, namely gas. We'll get now more from other countries that might overall remain the same. But at the same time, there is more use of coal, for instance. Overall, you could say that it, it, it has delayed the energy transition. But the other side is obviously that uh, when you diversify transitional uh, uh, fossil fuels like gas, 
uh, you will have to have a foreign policy around that so that you don't become dependent on another country, which makes you very vulnerable. And at the same time, when it comes to greening of the economy, I think in the end it will speed it up. There is a real realization that these things are related and you see an enormous reduction, not only because of this war, but overall in, in prices for uh, solar and, and, and wind energy. And I see really a support uh, for this speeding up of the energy transition. So overall, I would think you could defend the position uh, that for the medium and long term, it might have slightly a positive uh, consequence for energy transition. Uh, but that's easy said because we all know that energy transition has to do with costs, with investment, who can afford it, and uh, if the Europeans are really organizing themselves. And there the jury is still out. Um, speaking of speeding up, do you think, well, before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the EU was often criticised for its lack of decisiveness and its slow decision-making process when reacting to crises abroad and also to EU enlargement. But we've seen, particularly in the response to Ukraine, very rapid, um, rapid decision-making. Do you think that this has fundamentally changed for, for Europe, fundamentally changed for the EU? Well, I don't know fundamentally. It has definitely catalyzed a new way of making foreign policy in Europe. Uh, you know, Europe is not slow because it's slow in itself or it's a big bureaucracy. We have uh, together in Europe enlarged the European Union that meets automatically, uh, you know, different interests from countries from Poland to Lisbon, from uh, uh, Sweden to, to, to Portugal. And in itself, that's not so bad that this requires compromise and the compromise in the end comes. But when you need a crisis, when you're back in the world of geopolitics, when it's you're back in the world of hard power, when it's just not functional economic decision-making, you need much more speedy decision-making. And I think the beginning has been laid always by external crisis or by an enormous uh, change in the situation. We've seen this with COVID or for the first time, you know, there was this beginning of, of making a European debt a possibility to support countries all over Europe because of COVID. I think here with the, um, the, the Ukraine crisis, you see two things. One is it's not only the European Union that is making quick decision making. We see also this transatlantic decision making in Rammstein around military support and in the financial issues including uh, support uh, and, and, and budget support and, 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 and making sure that the Ukrainians can survive the winter, that this transatlantic decision-making has also forced the Europeans to get their act together. The second is that I think the role of heads of states and prime ministers is now even more crucial in setting the lines for decision-making. They, they cannot escape the necessity to act on uh, the Ukraine. And it doesn't mean it always goes quick. Think about the enormous discussions that we've had uh, around some of the um, uh, delivery of weapons. Uh, although, at the same time, one should say that is not necessarily a European affair in terms of institutions, but a bilateral affair in which uh, Germany was criticized to be rather slow. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, people said also when it went uh, to the decision-making on leopards, and the tanks that it was necessary to do that in the context of the transatlantic relationship and to share the risks with uh, our nuclear ally, if you wish, in the United States. In short, is yes, I think the decision-making is quicker. 
It is also urgent to do that. You need the Council of Heads of States to make sure that it is a decision-making that is integrated, post foreign policy to a certain extent military, but also regarding gas and the economy. And that automatically leads to, I think, uh, a, a, a much more often intensive decision-making process in Europe, where you see also that the map is changing. Countries like Poland play a much larger role. The French-German engine doesn't work as before, but at the same time, you see, it is when it comes push comes to, ter- to, to, to terms, they, they 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 find a compromise. In short, yes, it's quicker. In some issues, it's not quick enough, in my view. When you you look at, for instance, now the urgent need uh, uh, for further economic support for the Ukraine, uh, but also in terms of some of the the, the financing of uh, of supplies uh, for ammunition and so on for the Ukraine. It's a defining moment in which the European Union wakes up to the dangerous world it's in. So Joseph Borrell, the High Representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, the EU's top diplomat, has recently suggested that the EU is running out of uh, ways to add to the sanctions on Russia Uh, People have said that, okay, if the sanctions aren't the way forward, maybe we could just do more for Ukraine. Um, But there are limits on what more EU countries can do for Ukraine, right? Uh, It's not that the EU has been holding back. It's that there are one, escalation risks, and two, limits on what the EU itself has. So what do you think would be a smart way to move forward, considering the very real possibility that this war is going to continue for some time? Yes, let's be open about that. We don't, the, the, the war is unpredictable. We know the different theoretical, uh, uh, possibilities. One side wins or the other, or there's a stalemate or there's some type of peace agreement. All not necessarily likely at this point. We will probably have a protected war, which I don't hope we will see in this year because I think it's a crucial year both for internal coherence in the European Union as because of the US election what happens. Uh, I would hope we're also preparing in Europe for scenarios of how you can deal with scenarios of de-escalation, but obviously that's not the moment right now. So what could we do right now? I think a lot. Uh, First of all, on the military side, Uh, although Europe has, I think, together with the U.S., supplied most of the weapons since the beginning of this year on all kinds of of issues from from rockets, artillery, uh, uh, now, of course, the the tanks coming hopefully a little bit quicker than we've seen so far, there is still an enormous urgency in Europe to be much faster, to be much more coherent, and to be much more involved in a transparent way. We don't want a new military-industrial complex, but I think we need to work with our defense industry so that the ammunition shortages uh, and the stock shortages uh, are are really reduced and that we are quickly supporting uh, the the Ukraine because, as you know, there is an enormous lag time. Uh, I see now all kinds of problems with this, this, this tank coalition uh, there's supposed to be two battalions uh, pretty quickly. There are very few yet on location. So we need to speed that up both in terms of the relationship with industry, 
even some elements, I don't like to mention it as, as, as a fighter for peace, but some elements of a war economy. Uh, second, it requires more quick decision-making on financing and delivery. That's, that's the military aspect. Second, I think on the economic aspect, uh, we have to uh, go further than we did so far in the support for the budget of the Ukraine, but also the preparation of, which is actually new, that you partly reconstruct during conflict. We cannot just wait. It's not a phase of war and peace and you do what it has to continue especially in view of the enormous courage of the ukrainians and doing that in a way that in that really includes the issues that we have learned from other places local initiative building back better and if you don't want that to be a slogan i think it's important that's my second point that we relate that to the perspective of Ukraine to be a member of the European Union. That, that was obviously a political symbol. Everybody realized it's not tomorrow, but it gives you also a chance to support the Ukraine in a different way than maybe in, in, in a more state of the art post-conflict reconstruction. So on the economic and military field, I think we can uh, do quite a bit more at this moment. Thirdly, I think uh, on the issue of migration, we have to at least think through the different scenarios in Europe. You will have, I think, and, and get some uh, flows of refugees from certain countries where there are relatively many Ukrainian uh, families, often without a man, to other countries. We have to make sure that they can integrate well because they, they, they have been welcomed, much more welcomed. There is a very discrimination in Europe if you compare the Ukrainians towards many of the other uh, asylum seekers in, 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 and migrants from, from Syria, Afghanistan, Africa and so forth. But leaving that issue on the side for a minute, although I think it is important to mention, uh, I think around uh, migration issues there is also a need for the European Union to support this, to partly finance this and to also uh, anticipate uh, consequences in the near future, especially when you would have a more protected uh, war in which also refugees could play uh, a role locally for our economies, but also in the reconstruction back home. There are many other examples I could mention, but for Europe, this is something that doesn't go away. It's not something of one winter. It will require the solidarity with Ukraine, uh, and it ne that needs a lot of political initiative. It leads also an explanation, I think an authoritative explanation of why so much is at stake to our populations. Do you think, should the war either end or settle into the protected stalemate that it may yet settle into, Europe is going to be able to remain united on strategies towards Russia? We've seen divides on the question of Russian refugees, of Russians who have uh, fled mobilization or who have just fled the changing political situation in Russia that some countries think Europe should take them, other countries think that Europe should not. The result has been an effective ban on at least many of them. Uh, you know, when you talk to European officials, you do hear very different views on how Europe should posture towards Russia. Do you think that is going to be a point of division for Europe? Or will Europe, as you've said it has done in the past, get it together and find a unified path forward? 
Well, I think, in fact, we have to already right now, and I hope it's it's happening more in our planning staffs in our different foreign ministries, we should prepare for this. Look, uh, uh, first of all, Russia will remain in, uh, in, in part of Europe. Uh, second, it's for me absolutely clear with the struggle of, for emancipation and for peace of the Ukrainians that, you know, with the n- new geopolitical fault line uh, that we are seeing, where European Union and NATO become more and more the same, even if not completely, uh, that also the, 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 the Central Europeans and East Europeans will want to have a Europe whole and free in their definition of the word, emancipated from this Russian imperialism. So that's going to be very complex. And we have to prepare for scenarios. Second, Russia will remain part of Europe. It's a nuclear power. Uh, it will be possibly pretty much weakened, although we're not even 100% sure of that, but I think that might be an assumption you can take if you look to some of the future of its uh, of its fossil fuels industry, and even if it can export elsewhere, and even if it has a lot of staying power and resilience in terms of, 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 of keeping a weak position and still being a player. Uh, but but it, it has to, we will have to determine how we deal uh, with Russia. That will depend on the end of the war, obviously. I think the an, an, a, a prolonged war will be difficult for all of us, first and foremost for the Ukrainians. It's for them to decide, but let's be open about it. A very long war will mean more risk of escalation, more risk of escalation both geographically as in terms of the use of weapons, it will mean more devastation uh, and it will be, um, you know, risks to coherence possibly, not so much maybe in Europe, but I also look with one eye to the elections in the United States and listening to, you know, uh, the, some of the Republican uh, uh, people who want to be in power or are have taking leading positions in this, even if not yet in Congress. So that, that, that's number one. I think, you know, we have to prepare for a long war, but obviously in 2024, I think there will be a new weighing moment, depending on how these different offensives will go. Uh, and then I think Europe should be prepared for different scenarios. I mean, there is no doubt about it. The security order of Europe is at stake. It's unpredictable. Russia will be part of it. The International Crisis Group, I think, have, have, is starting to, to work also on this, which I think is very important. What do you do with snapback sanctions? What can you do with guarantees? How do, can you ensure that there is no naivete to a reconstruction of an imperial logic of, of Russia? Can you work about military disengagement? Even things about ceasefires will have to be thought through. And everybody realizes that... I think, at least from my side, there's no time for negotiations right now. We are supporting the Ukraine very clearly in a fight for justice and territorial integrity. But that doesn't take away that we have the obligation to look at these different scenarios. And to be very honest with you, Olga, it is unpredictable to a large extent. And let me say last but not least... Uh, I, I, my position is not that we should boycott Russian culture or Russian citizens. If the people who have the right to asylum in Europe, they should have it. And obviously that requires an extra security check because of the risks that we all know uh, through hybrid warfare and, and the enormous spying scandals that we see 
through the destructive behavior of of Russia. So you said that we should return to the Europe's engagement with the global south, and I'd like to do that now briefly at least. Um, the war in Ukraine has shown significant differences in Western and non-Western perspectives, with some countries in the global south preferring not to take sides. Um, at the same time, uh, Russia's engagement in the global south, particularly in Africa, in regions like the Sahel, seems to be increasing. And there seems to be increasing concern from from Europe but also from the US about about what this means. In how do you how do you view this competition? How is it viewed in Europe? And what can Europe and its member the EU and its member states do better to engage with countries in the global south? Well, I I think Europe can do much better than it does right now. Uh, to me, it is, we are in a situation in which you, you see that the West in its old fashioned wording of the transatlantic relationship, maybe with now with AUKUS and, and Japan and, 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 and Australia and so on, is more united than ever. But as a whole, they are less powerful than before. That's very important for Europe to understand. Uh, it might be that we have large majorities supporting uh, 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 the, the Ukrainian in their, in their justified fight. You see also that in big countries like China and, and India, you look at the opinion polls, they might not always be completely free, but a large majority nevertheless sees Russia not as an enemy, but as a friend. It doesn't mean that I believe that they support, uh, the, 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 if you, if you wish and use the word recolonization of the Ukraine by Russia. I think there is a, a, a common view in the end that this is throwing the UN charter to pieces, like, like the Kenyan ambassador of the United Nations has said. But I think it is a wrong policy of Europe to think that uh, the Africans or the Latin Americans, as in all times, would simply sign at the cross and support positions in which there are very legitimate concerns on the rest of the world, that for them, you know, the sanctions and the, also including the, the policies of Russia, obviously, have enormous consequences, as we have seen for their economy, even much more than what I just discussed in Europe in terms of inflation rates, in terms of food prices, in terms of fertilizers and so on. Uh, second, that they feel already that, you know, there is a request for support from Europe at the moment that that was absent in the past post-COVID and, and during some other conflicts, which we did are much closer to some of the citizens of the countries we are faced with now. Um, and, and so it means not to say that there shouldn't be a debate. Uh, what I think is that we really should think in that competition that to a certain extent definitely exists uh, between larger and smaller powers, including in the global south, between China maybe and Russia and Europe and the US in Africa, for instance, you see also another side to that, namely the possibility of these countries to project their own interests that might be different than ours for the reasons I just mentioned, that they are obviously also hedging for different possibilities uh, and that they, I think also, and that would be a sensible position of Europe based on their values, because it's also a value question. Let's not avoid it, especially not when we talk about the Ukraine, but not necessarily, not necessarily to see that as sort of a historical fight between autocracy and democracy. 
But to understand it, we have to work in real partnerships with some of the, for instance, for some of the African countries. I think that is feasible. It'll take time. It'll take the necessity to listen. It will take the necessity to go to unusual suspects. Uh, but think through what the interests on the other on the, on the other sides are. You see, for instance, now that Germany is trying to do that with some countries, e- including even on migration policy. I think that's the sensible approach. Make a big diplomatic effort, but don't make it something that is just asking other countries to sign by the cross. The global south is also not completely united, but I think they have a unified position to a certain extent that they say, listen, there are double standards. There was also the Iraq war. Uh, There were conflicts in our territories. We have these consequences of the sanctions. Let's sit together and come back to a global conversation. I think this is absolutely key for us also as crisis group, you know, uh, in the support of the Ukrainians and the acceleration of history we see through this new interstate war, there is also the possibility uh, to engage in a much more of a global conversation now that some of these countries have also now the power, even if it's sometimes small, to hedge uh, and to go for their own positions in the UN Security Council, in the World Bank, in the IMF, all these questions that are now so crucial for global governance and for, for, for climate issues. So what about the... Um the elephant uh, on the global stage, the United States, uh, before the full-scale Russian invasion, there was a lot of talk of European strategic autonomy, which is code for let's figure out what we can do without the Americans because the Americans aren't always reliable. Um, so the risk that the Americans will again become unreliable has not gone away, but the conversation about European strategic autonomy largely has. Um, how do you see this moving forward? Very good question. Well, first, you're right on on your point. I mean, if you know, let's be open about it. In the support financially and militarily for the Ukraine, which is a justified support, Europe would be nowhere without the United States. Uh, And I think the Biden policy, the Biden policy for many Europeans have been a very positive surprise. After Afghanistan, after Trump, here is a clear value and interest based cooperation in the support of Ukraine. Of course, there are differences and so on and so forth, but in the end, this is the key. Uh, the two things to that, yes, it throws to a certain extent the big words around strategic uh, autonomy in the dustbin. At the same time, we all realize there are elections in 2024. Uh, nothing remains the same. Uh, th- there are also differences of interests. You see sometimes also a certain crushing of Europe in certain aspects between uh, China and the US on, on certain elements of technological policy and so forth and so on and so forth. We have the neighborhood here. Ukraine will be part of Europe. Russia will remain in Europe. So we will have to be forced. And this should be not only a wake up call, but a reality call that just talking about it is is not very <laughs> convincing at the moment. We immediately have to ask uh, everything from, from from the United States. So f- one conclusion of this, it will not go from one day to the other. Second, in the analysis that there would remain a consensus also in, in, in the US for support on the Ukraine, it will mean that the burden will more and more shift to Europe for the financial support and reconstruction of the Ukraine. 
Yes, also with the World Bank and the IMF and the Americans and the Japanese, but nevertheless, there's a first responsibility for Europe. And on security issues, you will have to have in the next European Commission a, a, a real commissioner for defense, a real operationalization in terms of money, the planning of money, and our defense industries. It sounds not very interesting maybe for... You know, somebody who's also come from, 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 you know, how to build peace, but peace here cannot be built without a support system. So strategic autonomy is, I think, getting a boost. Uh, but let's be open about it. If it again, this chance would not be taken. It is very risky for Europe. It's very risky even for, 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 uh, for, for the Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, sort of storytelling that we can do this tomorrow is out of the question. You see that, especially in the, in the, in, in the discussion with France, France is key for us, uh, because France is the largest European uh, defense power, much more than Germany, as we all know. Also, France looks at this. We keep the agenda, but we realize that we can only do it uh, at the beginning as a sort of a European pillar of NATO and in close cooperation also with the United Kingdom. That's... Wow. Yep. Yeah. That's fascinating, and uh, I feel like we should do another episode on uh, on this topic alone. Uh, but for today, I think we're just going to have to thank you, Bert, for coming on uh, to War and Peace, for coming back to War and Peace, um, and look forward to for the uh, look forward to the next time uh, that you return. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for all your comments and all your discussions on this uh, important issue. For more on Crisis Group's work on the war in Ukraine, Russia, European security and EU foreign policy, you can check out Crisis Group's website. That's www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter and other social media. Uh, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. I'm at Olya Olikar on Twitter and also on Mastodon. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that to ensure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to War and Peace. That's if you haven't done already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We're looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks, but until then, goodbye. Goodbye until next time.